Good morning, everyone. Um, this morning's reading is from 1 Samuel, chapter 13, verses 1 to 14. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel, 2,000 were with him at Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistines' outposts at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul had attacked the Philistine outposts, and now Israel had become obnoxious to the Philistines, and the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 with 3, chariots, 6,000 charioteers and soldiers as numerous, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the Israelites saw that the situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets, among the rocks and in the pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilad. Saul remained at Gilgal and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favour. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Amen. Good morning, everybody. It is uh, the last uh, talk in our series that we're doing on 1 Samuel, for now at least. We'll pick it up again next year, or we intend to. So if you've been here the last six or eight weeks, we've been on this journey with Israel as they've searched for a king, searched for a leader, they've made some mistakes, and they've learned a lot of, lot of lessons along the way. We come to this uh, meeting, this new king, this king in action this morning, and it's the real test of how he's going to go. Uh, but even though this is a story of so long ago, it's one of those Old Testament stories we go, what has this got to do with me? I think we'll find uh, humanity's always been the same, whether it's 3,000 years ago or today, we all wrestle with the same things. So I'm going to pray now before we start that God will certainly help us to see what's going on in this story so we can learn from it uh, and so we can know God better too. So let's pray. Dear Father, we do thank you for your love for us, that you reach out to us. That even as we meet here today, and you know, whether we're feeling tired, whether we're feeling a bit burnt and just hard from the world, Lord, we just pray that you'd soften us to listen to you. That as you promise that you do meet with us, and especially through your word, through your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would meet us where we're at. Speak to us, Lord, we pray this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. 
on Talkback Radio. I do listen to a little bit of Talkback Radio of a morning. Uh, and it seems to be an occurring subject that comes up if the radio, you know, the DJs want to stir up a bit of controversy. I think it's ratings time and they want people to engage with what's going on. So the question is raised about hot topic, and we're not going to talk about this morning, but hot topic, should mums return to work? So and everybody's got an opinion. Well, it seems to be the mums particularly have an opinion. So it goes like this. First caller calls in and says... Um, I'm a stay-at-home mum and I think this is right, the right thing to do. I think I'm valued and I think what I do is important uh, and, and I think I'm doing the right thing for my kids. I think going to work is actually failing as a mum and I don't think that should be valued. <laughs> the phone, phone lines light up, working mums phone up and say, well, excuse me, uh, I've had children. I'm and they try and justify their position and say, look, I am actually valued, I, I do all this st stuff, leading my home and my kids, and, and I work 40 hours a week and I do all this. I should be valued more than a working mum. And, and, you know, working mums, what do you do with all your time? Oh, and the banter just goes on and on. It's like blood is being shed because there's two different views. And it's not so much, I don't think, about the, whether paid for work, stay at home and work, all that sort of stuff. But it's actually about who's valued and what we see is valued and who's impressive. Is it more impressive to stay at home, raising your kids, uh, investing in your kids, keeping the household um, running as smooth as possible? Or is it more valued or more impressive that someone would try and do all those things and work and contribute to society? And it seems like society is going, no, we value women to go to work, so we'll, we'll help them with childcare. It's all these views of going, who's valued the most? Who's the most impressive? Because it seems like... Yeah, on one side, they're going, well, stay-at-home mums, you're kind of wasting there. You're living a pretty ordinary life. And we're not called to be the ordinary life. We're called to be the exceptional life, the impressive life. Do more with your life is the challenge. And it rubs up the wrong way because they go, no, raising my kids is impressive. It's extraordinary. And so it goes both ways. Now, we're not going to go into this subject tonight, but I think we do value... Uh, or we do aim for the impressive. Who wants to be the ordinary life? Who lays in bed at night thinking, can't wait to tomorrow so I can live another ordinary day? We don't do that. We go, I hope tomorrow is extraordinary. I hope I can have an influence. I hope I get the recognition for doing my job. I hope I, something spectacular happens and, and I can be valued, that I can lead the exceptional life, the extraordinary life, the impressive life is kind of what we all ingrained in us all we hope to we want to stand out we want to be known for certain things now i was thinking about this and how that plays out uh, as christians so if you're a christian here today you want to follow jesus and do that well or even if you're just uh, curious about jesus and you're here today and just think what does this look like to be a christian i think we're thinking about what does it look like to be an impressive christian we don't want to be an ordinary christian because, you know, that's pretty plain. That's not valued. We want to be the impressive Christian. And a few images comes to mind. You know, is it the, the holy sort of spiritual person? Do I want to be known as the Christian who sort of walks on clouds and it's just peace at all times? Do I want to be the Christian that's full of energy, always pumped, always praising God, always got uh, something to say about that? Or do I want to be the Christian... That was a, I didn't have any Christian sort of wise people like this 
to go with. But the, you know, the kind of guy that's got always something wise to say, a good quote, a bo- something out of the Bible, you know, just the, the, the granddad sort of figure. That's sort of the image. I want to be a, an exceptional Christian. I don't want to be the ordinary Christian. I want to be something like that. That's what we sort of dream about. I want to stand out. I don't want to just do the ordinary life. I want to be the exception. Now, this is something that Israel has been wrestling with in their journey. Israel, God's people, his nation in the Old Testament. Is what does it mean to look impressive? They want to be impressive. They don't want to be the ordinary. But what really is impressive? What, what does it mean to be impressive for them as a nation? Later on, we'll talk about that for us. So we're we valuing the right things when we think through what is impressive? Is the ordinary impressive in itself or is it, is it just plain settling for second best? Or what is impressive uh, for somebody who's a Christian, somebody who's following God and trusting Jesus? What does that look like? This is the journey Israel's been on, wrestling with that sort of thing. Particularly, it's come to a head in these couple of chapters. I'm going to spend some time in the chapter before the one we just had read. and It sort of sets up that story of Saul, the new king that we had read for us. Uh, so Samuel is giving his people a speech. Uh, Samuel is the prophet, uh, the, the leader who was with them. He wasn't their king. He was their godly leader steering them. And now they've got a king in Saul. They demanded a king. They got a king. And this is uh, what's called Samuel's farewell speech. But he's not totally going to disappear. He'll come into the story a bit later on. But this is Samuel's farewell speech. And he's trying to get them to see, even though they're trying to be impressive by having a king, he says, I want you to look at things a bit differently. I want to give you a different perspective in what impressive really looks like. See, for Israel, they, thought, they saw all the other nations, so their neighbouring nation, who they're always uh, at fighting with, uh, are the Philistines. So they're a big nation, they're a strong, powerful nation, they've got a king, they've got a big army, they look impressive. Israel haven't got any of that. They're, they're sort of peasants, they're farmers, uh, they haven't got a king yeah, it just doesn't feel like they're a real nation. They're like, we want to be a nation. We want to stand up and we want to be recognised. We want to be impressive. It's just so other nations can see us and see we are somebody. That's why they wanted a king. We've got a king. We've got a throne. We've got a palace. We're the real deal is what they're, uh, trust, uh, what they're aiming for, to be like the other nations. And this is what they aimed to do. Now, for Samuel, he's, he's sharing with them Hey, actually, how impressive is it just having a king to what you had before? And he talks them through from his perspective. So he opens up in the opening verses. uh, So this is uh, chapter 12. uh, Opening up, uh, introducing this, this subject. So he's got all the Israelites, or at least all the Israelite leaders in front of him. And he goes into his speech. He says, I get it. I'm old. I'm grey. I'm out. I've been around for a long time as your leader. You don't want me. I get that. You've got rid of the unimpressive, the plain old guy, and you've got the new guy, the king. And we heard a bit about Saul in previous weeks uh, where he's exceptionally tall. He looked like a pillar of strength, so he looked like a good leader. You know, so you've got Samuel on the one side, the the aged old man with his grey hair, and he goes, there's your king, and, and Saul's over here, tall, you know, good-looking and you know, impressive figure. He says, I get it. 
I get it. Out goes the old, unimpressive. In comes the new, the impressive. But, but he goes on and explains, actually, do you realise what you had, the plain and the ordinary with me, actually, it wasn't so bad. So he goes on to explain, did I do any of these things to you? Did I take anything from you? Did I rip you off? Was I acting uh, dishonestly? And he, he, um, he challenges them with that. He says, the old king... Uh, the new king looks impressive, um, but is he like me? Have I done anything wrong by you? And it gets to down to verse uh, 4. They, so they reply to him, You have not cheated us or oppressed us, they replied. You have not taken anything from anyone's hands. Like you've been an honest leader. But they actually say some words here that's interesting. You have not taken anything from anyone's hand. You've done the right thing. Now, a few chapters back, when they were talking about, Israel were talking about having a leader, uh, God told Samuel, say, look, tell these guys, if they want a king, what are the rights of a king? This is back in chapter 8. Quick, quick summary, we won't read all through it. But the highlights of that, this is what the king will do. This is what his rights are. He will take your sons, he'll take your daughters, he'll take your fields, he'll take a tenth of your crops, he'll take your servants, the best of your cattle and your donkeys and your flocks, and you yourselves will become his slaves. See, it's interesting. The king looks impressive. Visually, he's a tall guy, good leader by the looks. Uh, having a king looks impressive as a nation. Worldly speaking, when I look around, we need a king. We've got a king. But he says there's another level of wisdom, if you like, that says actually what you had before was a good leader under God's control and going in a good way. Now you've put a king... I think about it. Is that really that impressive that you're now going to lose all your stuff? So he's challenging them, challenging them to think about it. Now he goes, yeah, how impressive is your king? I've got doubts on the whole system, he's saying. How impressive is God? He's going to go into a spiel. Now he's going to go, uh, I want you to think about what God is doing and this is the God you rejected. Having a king, they said, we don't want God as our king, we want our own king. So how impressive is God? And he gives them a bit of a lesson in the past, present and future. He says, how impressive is God? So for the past, uh, he, he intros it by pointing him back to Egypt. The Lord appointed Moses and Aaron to take you out of Egypt. Remember what happened in Egypt? You're in Egypt in slavery and God rescued you from that. And it seems like the people are going, rolling their eyes going, here we go again. Yeah, a history lesson. I mean, who's into history, Right. These guys are all standing maybe out in the sun listening to this guy. This is the last thing we want is a history lesson. He says, no, history is important. You want to know what God is like? Look at history. Look at what he's done. And actually, I'm going to confront you with the history, he says. I'm going to challenge you about the history, about what's gone on. So he says, I want your attention. You need to know how impressive God is. And he carries on in verse 8, gives them the history lesson. Jacob went into Egypt, they, carried, uh, <clears throat> they cried out to the Lord, the Israelites, God's people, cried out to the Lord because they were in slavery, they wanted help. And the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your ancestors out of Egypt and settled them into this place. He's saying, look, take a look around you, the land you're in. This is all because God saved you out of slavery. You were in slavery, now you've got this beautiful place. That's what the Lord did. But, he says... But there's a few buts in this speech. This is the first but. But in verse 9, 
You forgot about God, as in you, your nation, your ancestors. You forgot about God. You know, went to uh, other idols, trusting other gods. They forgot about the real God. He says, God, let the Philistines come in. The king of Moab come in. He lets you go into the hands. And then what happened? You realised you were desperate. You cried out to God, asked for forgiveness. God come and rescued you. He sent people like Jeroboam, Barak, Jephthah, and now Samuel. Now, what he's doing is giving a summary of what we have in the book of Judges, the book of the Bible, a bit before this. Uh, this is the cycle that happened. People... Um, thought they could live without God, take on other gods. Other nation comes in, they invade them, take them away. They cry out to God, realise they're desperate, repent. They ask for forgiveness. God sends them a leader. They uh, trust that leader because he's a godly man. God saves them and gives them peace. Lesson learned? No. They do it again and again and again. When life's good, we forget about God and move on. He says this happened over and over again. But through this cycle... Has God failed you? God's an impressive king, historically. Every time you cried out, God come and saved you. Did God ever lose a battle? God had a 100% success rate. God was always there. He's a good leader. Historically, he was there. But, another but, from verse 11. But as soon as another king threatened you, so it's not history anymore, this is in your lifetime, as soon as another king threatened you, you didn't chase for God, you chased for a king like the other nations. You chased for a king. It's like, you know, this history lesson, is this making sense to you? This is dumb, the decisions you're making, if you just think about what you're doing. But in a sense, I suspect we're just like them or they're just like us, that we don't learn from history We'd rather look around and make our own judgments. They're looking around at the other nations and going, hey, we need to learn from the other nations, not learn from God and the way he's acted in the past. So historically, they're going, oh, okay, point made. Historically, God is impressive uh, in our history lesson. What about is God impressive even now? Because even now we read the Old Testament, God did amazing things in those times. But what is he really doing now? I'm sure they're asking the same question. So God in the present, he goes on uh, from verse 16. I'll read to you what he says because he, he throws out the challenge to them. He says, Now then, stand still and see this great thing the Lord is about to do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest now? Meaning, uh, yes, you sow the wheat in the wet season, you harvest in the dry season. They're not expecting any rain right at this point in time. He says, I will call on the Lord and send thunder and rain and you'll realise what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for a king. Then Samuel called on the Lord and that same day the Lord sent thunder and rain. So all the people stood in awe of the Lord and of Samuel. You can imagine being there. Look, it's a clear sky. It's the dry season. It's not going to rain. But Samuel prays and all of a sudden the thunder claps. And it's, they start getting wet. And they're like, man, there's something going on here. They didn't maybe not learn from the history lesson, but when they're experiencing God's power there and then, they're, they're paying attention now. I haven't been in anything like that, where something like that has happened, but it would be pretty awesome to be there at that time, wouldn't it? I have heard of um, 
a bizarre story about a church who um, were having some very serious internal conflict and they had a congregation meeting. It got to the point, I don't even know what the issue is, but it got to a point where one of the elders stood up and said, this plan is not happening. Over my dead body will this happen. And the next day he was dead. And you kind of go, whoa, I'm not sure what you learned from that. Uh, sorry, I should say he's dead from natural causes. Nobody just popped him or anything. <laughs> like... But it's, it's like, is that coincidence? Did God really say, look, that was a silly thing to say? Or is the lesson just never say over my dead body because God might take your word on that? But there's moments where you kind of got to go, whoa, is God there? And he's really active in our presence. So what are the people going to do? Are they going to be impressed by Samuel, or are they going to be uh, repentant? Say, yes, we want to submit to this God. So they come back in verse 19. And they say, the people said to Samuel, pray to the Lord your God for your servants so that they will not die, for we have added to all our other sins the evil of asking for a king. Now, there's a couple of things there. They're, they're wording. It's not pray to God for us, or we're going to pray, we're going to repent. Just, can you pray for your, to your God for us? It's not really the way God works. God is very relational. He's our God. He's my heavenly Father. But not when they're saying it's your God, they're still distant. It's almost like they believe there is a God. They believe he's divine and controls all things. But he's not our God. He's not my God. So they haven't repented. They don't, uh, they're not there yet because he's not their God. But then Samuel goes on to show them what this looks like. God's uh, impressive in the past, he's impressive now, clap of thunder, and he's also impressive in the future. So if you want, if you want to connect with this God, if you want to live under this God, here's what it looks like. He goes on in verse 20. Uh, to explain what it means to live as God's people. Now, in verse 24 is a bit of a summary, uh, just pulls it all together. He says, but, another but, but be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. Yet if you persist on doing evil, both you and your king will perish. This whole thing, if you're serious about God, serious about living under him, you need to start serving him as God, serving him as Lord, serving him as your king. Now, sometimes we see this stuff and go, oh, okay, so the better a person I am, the more religious I am, the more spiritual I am, God will reward me. It doesn't work like that. It's not a reward thing or getting you into his family. It's about God is king, submitting to him. You're a part of his family. Now, by way of serving, serving is an expression of appreciation, relationship, love even. Yeah, it's a bit like the people around us, the people we value most, the friendships. Like even, um, for example, husband and wife. Now, if you go around, uh, if you say, yes, they're my husband or wife, uh, but you don't, you pretty much ignore them, you still live your own life, you push them away and you just bump into them at night time. It's like there's no relationship there. So marriage is a picture of serving, sacrificial serving, uh, meeting their needs, as a way of appreciation and respect, there's relationship happening when that happens. Same with God. You know, to be a believer is not just a to-do list. Do this, do that, do that. But if you're serious about God as your, your Lord, you'll want to 
live a life that pleases him. So he's saying do that. Serve him faithfully with all your heart, not just your actions with your hands, but with your heart serve him. And because he's the God of the future, he's not going to change, he's not going to go anywhere. Uh, If you don't, if if you continue to reject him, you and your king will perish. He's an impressive God, past, present and even future. He's still going to be God. He's still going to be doing that. So it makes sense seeing them. I can imagine if you're there, you go, okay, I'm seeing this speech. I mean, we, we hear this speech today and we go, okay, we can have confidence in God. We can see how impressive he is and I need to follow this impressive God. But for Israel, they've got a bit of a dilemma. You can see that, you can hear that, but then when you walk away from the meeting and you can see what the Philistines have got and see what the other nations have got, you're going, well, actually... In a worldly way of seeing the world, they're still impressive. And that's not what we've got. We've got this God who has a lot of words and power and history. But they look impressive right now. So what does it look like to have a powerful nation? So even today, I think a few principles still stand. To be a powerful nation, somewhere like Russia, there's a lot of respect. They're a powerful nation. Uh, a strong leader, uh, very clearly, who is the leader? Somebody who's confident enough to ride a horse without a shirt, uh, is a confident leader. Uh, they've got the palace. They've got the buildings to say, this is home. This is where it all happens. This is the administration. And they've got an army. They've got might and they've put it on display. That's impressive, worldly speaking. And this is what I'm not saying Russia's the Philistines, but when Israel look at Phil- the Philistines, this is what they see. We want to be like the other nations. We want to be impressive like that. Now for Israel, they've just got themselves a king. It's the first step. They haven't even built him a throne yet, but they want to build him a throne. They want to build him a palace. They've got none of that. They want to have the big army to be respected. There's still a bunch of peasants and farmers that you know just gather together when called upon. We want to be impressive. It's very easy for us to do the same thing, isn't it? When God says, I'll show you what's impressive, follow me. But yet we're going, actually, when I look around in my life, I can see a lot of other impressive things that take my attention. And I'm seeing that. And that's what my heart starts following. It's it's what I start serving, the other impressive things in a worldly view. But Samuel's doing his best to point them from from where God sits. And and look, look at what God's been doing. He is impressive, but they just don't see it. So there's a turning point. We've been talking about Samuel and the nation of Israel. Let's, let's focus down a little bit on an individual. So this is their king. This is Saul. How will he go? Will he sit under God? Will he uh, serve God as his king and lead his people that way? Or will he get it at all? So how impressive is Saul, is, is the journey uh, we, we tap into where our Bible reading was. Pick it up in verse 2. Verse, verse 1 is a bit of a summary about Saul's reign. Verse 2, we see Saul, he's trying to be the impressive king, the impressive leader. So this chapter is really all about Saul. Gathers an army of 3,000, gathers more than that, but he says, look, you know, I'm so confident in my leadership. I only need 3,000, sends the rest home, uh, keeps 2,000 for himself, gives his son Jonathan 1,000 and he pokes the bear. He says, go and uh, attack the outpost of the Philistines. Yeah, just let them know we've arrived. We're impressive. We've now got a king. Look at us. Poke the bear and go and attack the outpost. 
So then Jonathan does with his thousand soldiers, goes out. Uh, Saul wants to announce to Israel his great victory or his, what he's done as a great leader. So uh, he puts out an announcement for all Israel to hear that Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost. And now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. Look, we've got their attention, right? And they don't like it. That's what we want, right? Who did it? Not Jonathan. Saul. Saul has done it. Saul's going to take the glory for this one. We're obnoxious to the Philistines. Thank you, new king, for that. It's an honour. But you don't poke the bear and get away with it. So the Philistines come back, verse 5, and we hear about what they've done. How many soldiers did Saul have? 3,000. What do the Philistines do? They come back with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers. How many soldiers? As many as the sand is on the seashore. Basically, we can't count that high. There's so many. They've come back. They've poked the Philistines, got their attention. Now they've, they're coming back to sort out Saul. So Saul's under pressure. See, Saul's army, all of a sudden, it starts off, Saul's impressive, the impressive leader. I'm going to do impressive things as a nation's leader. But now, all of a sudden, what about Saul's army? It's looking very unimpressive. It's actually gone the wrong way. He's boasting about how obnoxious he is to the Philistines, but actually now he's obnoxious to his own men. They're all running, they're all hiding, they're going up into the hills, they're hiding caves, behind bushes. Some have even gone back, crossing the Jordan River. This is symbolic of um, they're on the promised land side of the Jordan River to cross the Jordan Rivers, going back into the desert land closer to Egypt. They'd rather be out there than in the promised land under Saul. Saul's become obnoxious even to his own men. But now he's under pressure. He's got to, you know, he can't lose face on this. He doesn't want to be an ordinary leader, a plain leader. He wants to be an exceptional leader, an impressive leader. So now he's got to wait for Samuel. There's a thing that happened back in chapter 10 where Samuel said to Saul, Samuel, the, the leader, said, look, if you're going to take these Philistines on and you go to this place, give me seven days because it's really important for me to do the sacrifice so we've got the Lord's blessing on this battle. Give me seven days and I'll be there. So now Saul's gone there. He's waited the seven days. You know, he's waiting, waiting. What's the worst thing to do? When the Philistines are gathering, your men are starting to run away. What's impressive and unimpressive? It looks very unimpressive. Saul's sitting on a rock, looking at his watch, going, I've got another day for Samuel to come around. We're just going to wait here a little bit longer. Meanwhile, the heat's coming. Your men's leaving. So he's under pressure to do something. What is the wise thing for him to do? Humanly speaking, he's trying to be impressive in a humanly way. Okay, let me do the sacrifice. I'll do the sacrifice and I'll sort this out. So he goes on in verse 8. And things kind of get bad to worse. Uh, he tries to sort this out with him doing the sacrifice. Just give me the burnt offering. Just give me uh, the stuff and I'll do it. Because uh, Samuel's not here. So I'll make things right because I'm the impressive leader. As soon as he does that, you heard it, Samuel walks in. Uh, he, Saul seems to hear him coming through the camp. And rather than meeting him at the altar where they're doing the sacrifice, Saul, it's like he doesn't want Samuel to see what he's done. So he goes out to Samuel to meet him. Samuel's like, what have you done? What have you done? 
And what does Saul do? What do, we do? what do we all do when we're trying to save face? Well, we're trying to look impressive. We don't want to be the ordinary or you know, plain. We want to be impressive. So we try and blame other people. So what does Saul do? It was the soldiers. The soldiers were all leaving me. Actually, no, Samuel, it's your fault. You weren't here when you were meant to. Actually, it's the Philistines' fault. They're coming and bringing the heat on me. All this stuff. I was forced to do it. I had to do it, he says. I was compelled to do it. Saul's still trying to look good. Still trying to look good, even in this situation. Excuse me. So, humanly speaking, Saul did what he thought was right and wise, humanly speaking. But we get down to verse 13. What does Samuel say to him? He says, actually, humanly speaking, I don't care about what that looks like, but spiritually speaking, or from God's point of view, you've done a foolish thing. A foolish thing. You thought you were doing a wise thing, humanly speaking, godly speaking, you've done a foolish thing. Saul tried to win the kingdom for himself. It's all about me and my victory, and I'm the big king that's going to bring honour to everybody. But in fact, Saul, Samuel explains, no, actually, you've tried to win the kingdom for yourself, but now you're not going to get the kingdom, godly speaking. You've failed. you failed. Even verse 15 is a bit of a summary where Samuel's gone after having words with him. Saul's left there and recounts his men. He started with 3,000, now he's got 600 left with the Philistines around the corner with as many as the sand on the seashore. It's like... This, this verse is like a big fail. You've failed. Humanly speaking, you tried hard. Godly speaking, you failed. You made it all about you and you're not impressive. But see, there's, there's an element of hope in this. For Israel, their king has lost, lost the plot. He hasn't got what it, what it appears to be right to, to live under God, serving God. And it's all falling in a heap. And we can associate with Saul. I associate with Saul. When I try and do my thing, when I try and look impressive, when I try and save face, I don't want to look bad. I don't want to look ordinary. So I do the same things as Saul. And I'm sure we all do in our own context. We don't want to look plain and ordinary in the background. We want to stand up, head and shoulders above everybody else that looks impressive, that looks like we've got it together. We aim for the impressive world in a worldly sense. But there's something going on here in these words of, of Samuel. When he says in verse 14, uh, The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's commands. See, God's got a better plan with a better king, a king that's not going to uh, look impressive because he's going to be the king, but a man after God's own heart. He's going to serve God relationally but he's also going to keep the lord's commands he's going to show that through obedience that he's genuine about his love for god and his submission to god now there's a little allusion here to the next king king david will pick up in the next uh, chapters next year but even david's going to fail but there is hope of this new king that's going to come and it's pointing us all the way to the new testament where god sends his own king in his own son in Jesus. Now, Jesus is an interesting character. He comes along as king. And even when you read this, you get a sense of Jesus is going to be impressive. Jesus is going to be awesome and powerful and exceptional, extraordinary. 
Jesus is not going to be plain. But then when we meet Jesus, humanly speaking, he's very unimpressive. Unimpressive. What would you expect a king to do? Take power, take a position on the throne, show in New Testament times it was the Romans who were the enemy, show those Romans who was in control, gather up a kingdom. Humanly speaking, Jesus was a big failure. He was a letdown. In his obedience, he's going, look, I'm not going to take the throne that you're thinking of. I'm not going to <clears throat> lead this force that you're thinking of. But he actually says, my, my kingdom is not of this world. And he does things like follows God's rule faithfully and obediently. Even to the point where Jesus is with his disciples and his disciples are going, you know, let's get these Romans. When is the kingdom going to come? Um, you know, they're looking for swords and things to battle. They even uh, cut off a soldier's ear at one point that Jesus has to fix up and heal. They're thinking, we're going to bring this. Humanly speaking, Jesus, let's do this. But Jesus goes, no, now's not the right time. Actually, we're going to walk into Jerusalem. I'm going to be falsely arrested, falsely charged, and then I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be executed on a cross. And they're like, if you remember their words, they're having this discussion. Go, no, no, we won't let that happen. That can't be. We're not going to let you die. That's a failure. That's not impressive. But through his obedience to God, that looks very ordinary, very unimpressive, he does it. He looks very unimpressive when he's hanging on a cross. We even sung some words this morning about how people mocked him hanging on the cross. You're the king of the Jews. And they were laughing at him, spitting at him. Very unimpressive for a king, worldly, using our worldly eyes. Who would follow a king like that? But yet, through God's eyes, he's going, if I'm going to redeem these people, if I'm going to make the sacrifice to bring these people back to me, that Jesus steps up and does it, that's an exceptional leader. That's an impressive leader who would give himself for his people. Now, this is really hard to see because on the one hand, we're living in the world and we're using our worldly eyes and we're looking around and seeing what's impressive to us. There's lots of impressive things in this world. Following Jesus is not impressive. If you've grown up in the faith and you're kind of wrestling with this, to, to somebody who's never understood the story of Jesus, Jesus is not impressive. But if we look through it with, from God's eyes, Jesus has done everything, perfect obedience, perfect submission, perfect sacrifice of himself, perfect giving himself for his people. So when Jesus was raised from the dead in victory, he is worthy of sitting on the throne. He is worthy of a bigger and better kingdom, a kingdom not of this world. But it's hard for us to see. In 1 Corinthians, so this is now in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul is explaining the foolishness of the cross, how it just doesn't make sense. And he explains there's different groups of people and they're trying to understand the cross. You've got these Jews that demand miraculous signs and Greeks who look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a dead king. He's saying. It says Jews demand miraculous signs. That's impressive. That's the claps of thunder in the sky and the rain falling on your head. That's impressive. The Jews want impressive. The Greeks look for wisdom. Wisdom's impressive. We value education. We value wise people in a worldly sense. That's imp Jesus wasn't that person. Jesus is the guy hanging on the cross. He says, that's the news we're bringing. But this news of Jesus on the cross, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolish to the Gentiles, 
But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. See, sometimes we need to stop using our worldly eyes and looking what's impressive and what we should be aiming for, but putting on God's spiritual eyes and going, actually, God's idea of impressiveness is very, very different to ours. When he sees his son has given up everything to sacrifice for us. It's very different from where we stand. It's no surprise then, when people see what Christians are about, people who follow Jesus, it's very unimpressive. We might try and make Christianity look impressive. You know, we put effort into our website, effort into our building, we try and get recognition from our community. But if that's all we're trying to do, to be impressive to our culture, we've missed the point. The people see us, the Christian life, as very unimpressive, but God sees the Christian life of uh, living a life under his rulership. Very impressive. So let me give you a few examples. People wonder why you come to church on Sunday or why you even make it a priority, not just a Sunday. Why do you do it during the week? Why are you part of a group like that? That's unimpressive. You'd be doing much more things to impress the world. What about your work ethic? Why do... A lot of people turn up for work late. They leave early. Now they treat the boss with contempt. But Christians should be called to treat their boss like you go to work, like you're working for the Lord, it's called. So we don't try and rip off the boss. We treat him with respect, with our work hours and everything like that. What about our marriages? You know, we have trouble explaining to the world why we even see marriage as important. But for marriage, for us, is, is submitting to the other, it's, it's serving the other, like Jesus gave his life for the church we give our life for each other, so we want to build each other up. We're really committed to our marriages that way, yet the world is going, well, you know, that's your first wife, but what about your second and third, or why even get married anyway? That's marriage. What about singleness? In Coppet, probably even harder. Singleness is a time, worldly speaking, is a time where you sow your oats in a sense, you know, get the right apps and hook up with as many people as possible before you settle down. Yet a life of singleness for a Christian is going, no, I'm trusting God's plan. I'm going to trust God's plan and I'm going to save myself for the right person. That is foolish to the world. It's actually, when we talk about being ordinary, that is very ordinary. The exception, the impressive is how many hookups you get according to the world. How we use our money. What, as a Christian, you would give away 10% of your money. You work hard for your money. You could use that to buy something else that looks impressive, but you give 10% of your money away? That looks very foolish to the world, very ordinary to the world. The extraordinary and the impressive is the person with the, the best job, the best toys, the best social life, the best standing. That's wisdom of the world. But actually what, what we're seeing here is God's showing us that impressive is kind of in a worldly way very ordinary it's the ordinary it is raising your kids it's working hard it's telling others about jesus living and testifying about him but it's it's this and i know it's hard i'm not just telling you this because i've got it together but we're standing one foot in the world but we're actually longing for the kingdom of god god the kingdom jesus bring into in heaven we're one foot in that kingdom and even though we're standing on one side and we're seeing what's impressive to the world and attracted by that God is saying today, no, 
Actually, see what the new kingdom is like. See what real impressive is. That this is worth living for. That this world standard looks very ordinary, the Christian life. But to God, this is extraordinary what he's leading us to. To be in his kingdom. To be in his arms. To be loved by him. It's extraordinary what he's calling us to. In a few moments, I'm going to pray, and then in a few moments, we're going to what we do what we call the Lord's Supper. This is where we take ordinary things. And I find this amazing, the way Jesus explained this, taking ordinary things, the bread and the juice, to say, I want you to actually look back. Look back, here's a history lesson. What has God done for you through Jesus giving himself as the leader? A very unimpressive thing, worldly speaking, but a thing that saves us. But we're also looking forward. He says, do this. Share the Lord's Supper. As a church family, share the Lord's Supper till the day I return. Because I am going to return. His past, present, future. He's uh, mighty and powerful. Let me pray first, and then we'll talk about that. Dear Father, I just thank you for that reminder this morning of how impressive you really are. But Lord, I've got to confess my heart, I think for many of us here, Often we get distracted from that. Often we look around in this world and start chasing other things, not deliberately, but we just get attracted to, to the impressive. And we think maybe in the world's eyes, ordinary is a failure. But Lord, thank you for showing us and thank you for the promise that trusting in you might look ordinary to the world, but it's the exceptional life, the glorious life. And it's a life that gives us security and hope and assurance. Lord, help us to focus on you and to trust in you. And even today, as we consider taking the Lord's Supper, that we come because of what you've done for us, not because of our impressiveness, but because of your impressiveness, that we trust in you for that and we long for the day you'll take us home. In Jesus' name, amen.